0: Hey guys, before we start the show, I want to talk directly to all the youth sports leaders out there. Have you ever had to get creative with how you handle replacing a lost jersey or help that new kid get a uniform well past the ordering window? Are you tired of handing out gear, managing orders, and stashing boxes in the basement? Hey, Squad Locker's here to change the game for you through our custom online store, you can offer a mix of custom sublimated, printed, and embroidered uniforms plus team gear and spirit wear all in one spot. Your always open store can serve coaches, players, parents, and fans directly and on demand, allowing for a seamless process from preseason to your championship run. Check out squadlocker.com/suitup. That's squadlocker.com/suitup to learn more. And now, on with the show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Here's our host and Squad Locker CEO, Gary Goldberg. Hey, everybody. Gary here. Uh, Please note that today's episode of On The Whistle contains themes of self-harm, abuse, and mental illness. And uh, if you find these topics difficult to listen to, uh, you just may want to listen to them with a friend or skip this episode altogether. Um, Please take care of yourself and and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. Um, If you need someone to speak with, you could visit www.suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call their 1-800 number, one 800 273 8255 thanks welcome everybody ladies gentlemen kids of all ages to another episode of on the whistle I'm your host Gary Goldberg and today we are joined by a remarkably interesting and successful mentor uh, lacrosse player and coach David Katowski Uh, David went to uh, undergraduate at Brown University this guy was a three-sport athlete, and uh, as a father who, who uh, my wife and I have three kids in college, we know what it's like just to take on the load of the college curriculum. Never mind play one sport. Never mind go to an Ivy League school. This guy did three sports, so we're we're going to want to dig into that and and understand how that was possible. I'm assuming you got decent grades, David, but maybe you just yeah. maybe you just were like a D minus student and just snuck by and played a lot of sports. I don't know. We'll we'll get into that. But uh, Dave uh, had a successful undergraduate career and uh, from there played a little professional lacrosse um, for the National Lacrosse League Indoor and the Bridgeport Barrage, a major league lacrosse outdoor program. Uh, Dave is a certified coach with the Positive Coaching Alliance. He's also the CEO and founder of the Elevate Academy and uh, the founding coach and began this wonderful program called Team Elevate Lacrosse, uh, which is out in Long Island. Dave, thanks for spending some time with us and, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Gary. I'm glad to be here. Hopefully, it's gonna be a great show.
0: Yeah, it will be because you're here. So, Dave, I'm just, I kinda wanna focus a little bit on lacrosse since that seems to be the area where you ended up spending the majority of your time. And I'm just curious, where did you learn lacrosse? How old were you when you started playing?
1: I'm the youngest of six kids, and um, my older – and there's a big difference in age between myself and my siblings. It goes 19, 18, 17, 16, and nine years older than me. So there's a big gap. So uh, I learned lacrosse from my brother, Matt. He played lacrosse. He played it in high school, and he also played at uh, Nassau Community College um, when they were – competing for national championships. So that's where I learned the game. I got my first stick from my brother, Matt. And then uh, I got put in the goal because uh, someone needed to get shot on.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's such a funny story. My middle child, uh, he learned lacrosse from his older brother and his older brother's friends. Their middle school team didn't have a goalie. And so they said to my son, if you go with mom on the way home and get a, a goalie stick, you can start on our team. And that's how he got into goal. So I think goalies are, they typically get found because nobody else wants to be one.
1: Yeah. I never, I never minded. I actually loved it. Um, but it was unique because I didn't get started to late. I didn't play youth lacrosse. My first experience was seventh grade of junior high. Uh, that was the first time I ever played an organized lacrosse game. And um, I had a great coach. Um, they loved that I was an athlete. So when we were man-up, I used to come out of the goal and play man-up, and uh, they would put in a backup goalie, and I would have my goalie equipment on with a short stick and play man-up.
0: Who was um, your, you know, thinking back on that time, who were your coaches, and how did you start to understand the relationship between being a player and having a good coach? Because you just said, I had some great coaches, or I had a great coach. What was great about that coach?
1: Well, I mean, I had a lot of great coaches. I mean, my first, my first coach that literally gives me goosebumps when I, when I talk about him is John Durante. And um, he was a gym teacher. He coached football. He also helped out with pretty much any sport uh, around. But John Durante, I claim that he was the one who really saved my life because I was going down a very bad path. And Duranty grabbed me one day, pulled me into his office and pulled a paddle off the wall. And they had paddles back then. And he said, either we're going to beat the bad out of you, or we're going to find the good in you. Which do you want? And I said, find the good, find the good. <laughs> and uh, two hours later, um, he had basically straightened me out and told me that I had so much going for me. And, um, you know, one of the things is I come from a divorced family. I come from a, a family of mental, physical, and sexual abuse. Um, and uh, for me, the two things, the two constants that I always had in my life were sports and school. I was always good in school and I was always good in sports. So having someone like John Durante who grabbed me and said, there's more for you, that's what a coach does.
0: That's, it's inspiring story. and, And, you know, the whole purpose of the show is to give voice to great coaches who have helped kids figure out how to reach their full potential. You said you're headed down a bad path. What does a bad path look like and What's the opposite of that? What's a good path look like?
1: Bad path for me was I started drinking uh, pretty heavily in sixth grade. I know that sounds crazy, but I was drinking pretty much every weekend starting in sixth grade. Um, I had uh, I was hanging out with a bad group of people, uh, doing bad things, and um, not living the life I was supposed to live.
0: And so, Dave, it sounds like a huge transition between being in that office and ending up at one of the most prestigious Ivy League schools or one of the most prestigious programs maybe in the world. How did you make that journey work from this kind of go nowhere kid with all his potential to ending up at the gates of Brown University?
1: I changed schools. That was the that was the most important thing. John Durante um, told my mother we have to send him to Shamanad High School in uh, Mineola, Long Island. Chaminade is a prestigious all boys Catholic high school. Had no idea how we were gonna pay for it, um, but that was it. I needed the discipline that Shamanad would offer. And I ended up um, passing the entrance test to get in. Um, like I said, I always had good grades. And uh, the rest is history. I, I started out as a ninth grader. Um, had detention the first uh, week of school as I was trying to settle into a new school, and it wasn't detention for like really bad things. It was I didn't have my top collar buttoned, I didn't have a belt one day, and uh, I realized, wow, this place is serious. Um, they're gonna give me, they're gonna give me demerits and detention just for having my top button unbuttoned. We wore a, uh, a jacket and tie every day, and so that was an eye opener for me. But for the first time in ninth grade, I came in. We had about, uh, we had a class size of about 500 kids, 500 boys, just in our one class. We had about 120 kids try out for football. And for the first time, I was like, I'm just a number. And how do I stand out? And um, I was a starter in every sport that I ever played. And uh, for the first time, I was playing different positions I had never played before. And it was it was an awkward transition for me. And then um, I really found my, um, I guess my, my path um, in the beginning of of uh, the wrestling season. I, uh, I went undefeated in wrestling as a freshman and I was MVP of the team. And that was where all of a sudden I just felt like, okay, I belong, um, I'm going to school with a lot of really, really rich kids. Um, some kids literally went to school in a limousine every day, got dropped off in a limousine and um, I was taking a bus or riding my bike.
0: Between the demerits and getting to that place where you feel like I belong, what did you rely on? How did you build yourself up to get to that point? It sounds like that was a break for you when you started to feel like you belonged and you had accomplished this undefeated season, which in any sport is an accomplishment. But how did you build the mental or physical lattice to climb to that first step?
1: Um, it was hard. Um when, when I was younger, um, my home life was terrible. And um, I, I just never wanted to be in the house. And I think that's why I focused so much on playing every sport possible so I could be out of the house and focusing on my grades. Um, I would study every night and I always had good grades because of that. But that it was something inside me that, that really wanted more. But there were times, and I'm not afraid to say it, I battled with my mental health my entire life, uh, as a kid, I was suicidal. Um, it's 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 sad to think about, but um, I I had great coaches and great mentors. Um, Bob Pomponio was my ninth grade lacrosse coach, and Bob and I are still friends today. And he served an incredible role in my life. Jack Moran, who was my varsity coach, and you know I love my coaches. Uh, I didn't have a, a, a bad coach at Chaminade. George who was my wrestling coach all four years. Tremendous man. Still in touch with him on a regular basis today.
0: And so it sounds like, you know, this long, complex journey eventually resulted in your acceptance at Brown and then, you know, obviously moving to Rhode Island and and starting off your college career. How, how did that transition go for you, Dave?
1: It was a tough transition. I was the first one in my family to ever go to a four year college. Um, my brothers and sisters either went to junior college or didn't go to school at all. So just the fact that I was going to a four year school and it was kind of funny. I, I originally uh, verbally committed to West Point, and um, you know, some people ask me, "How do you verbally commit to West Point?" The, they, they make you an offer, um, you verbally commit, and then you have to go through the process of getting accepted to West Point, and. Um, I was going to play football and lacrosse at West Point. That was the plan. Uh, On my recruiting trip, I went there and stayed with both the football captain and the lacrosse captain on different nights. And uh, I fell in love with the school. But then I went on my last recruiting trip to Brown, and I really fell in love with my school. And I said, this is the place for me. And I called my mom from the Providence train station. She asked me how my trip was. and I said, Mom, I'm going to Brown. And she said, it doesn't even sound like a good school. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. Our oldest child went on a lot of college tours. We took them all around the U.S. And then we, he, on his own, went to Babson one day to check it out. And he called his mother and said, this is the school I want to go to. And it's, it's amazing. Something clicks when that happens. Sure. And it's really undescribable. But I'm wondering, you know, for parents or coaches who are trying to find that great fit, for their students or for their children. Can you tell us a little bit about what that feeling was like when you got to Brown and you had that moment where you said, this is it, this is where I'm going to go. Because by the way, West Point, Dave, I mean, it's like a movie set. I mean, talk about being impressive.
1: I I tell everyone, I think West Point's the most beautiful campus in in the country. Yeah, Uh, It's just a gorgeous campus and and such great history with West Point. And uh, and I loved it. And I I think I would have, you know, done very well at West Point. As well. But for me, it was the people at Brown. Um, when I was able to spend time with the team and I stayed in a fraternity for, for the, two, the two nights I was there, uh, it was making those connections with the players and seeing uh, at the time, we had a lot of kids from Long Island. Um, I think Dom Starsha, who was my coach, at the time made a very smart decision. He had me stay with a, a guy named Vinny DePama. and Vinnie was very similar to me. He went to a Catholic high school in Long Island and he grew up in a divorced family. So I was able to connect with Vinnie and, you know, another guy, Scott Lohan, who Scott and I are still great friends today, uh, stayed with Scott as well. And um, it was connecting with those people and saying, these are the guys I wanna spend the next four years with.
0: Yeah. And when you think about your experience at Brown, um, talk a little bit about how prepared you were for the academic load. I mean, I kind of joked a little bit, but how the how did you pull off three sports? I mean, each one of those sports is a forty-hour-a-week commitment all year long, right?
1: It, it was it was hard, and and I started out as a bi- I, my, my mom wanted me to be a doctor, and so I started out as a biology pre-med major, Whew. and. Um, which was tough, especially, you know, freshman year. And uh, my biology labs were always on Mondays in the afternoon. And I was late to, I was late to practice every Monday. And when I was being recruited to play football at Brown, one of the things that, and both, you know, all sports and lacrosse too, was, you know, Dom Starsha told me academics take precedence, especially in the Ivy League at Brown. Well, we had a football coach who didn't feel that way. And every single Monday, He would make fun of me for being late to practice in front of the entire team and made my life uh, pretty miserable. And um, he was the reason why I ended up quitting football at Brown, uh, because he would just bust my chops all the time. And um, there was a time where we were in the middle of lacrosse season. He made me come to a spring lift for football. And same thing is he would just not wasn't a great coach. And he was one of the few coaches I have had, but I would say not a great coach where I truly disliked him. And he ended up, um, I quit football because of him.
0: Do you think I regret to this day? Do you think he wanted you to quit?
1: No, I was a starter. Um, I was captain of the freshman team at Brown. Um, so, you know, I had a very good chance of getting playing time, you know, sophomore year on, on the varsity. And, um, I don't think he wanted me to quit, but, uh, I was sitting there saying, "I'm wrestling. I'm playing lacrosse, and I love both my coaches. Don't need to deal with this guy. Yeah, I'll play football but lacrosse instead."
0: But you, you say you regret it. I do. W- what is it that you regret? The way you handled it, the way he handled you, the fact that you didn't resolve it—like unpack it I, a I think
1: the, the thing I regret the most was I let him get the better of me. Um, you know, I—he was the crucial part of making my decision instead of me making the decision for myself. And um and I re- I regret that part of it because I love football. And I loved all the sports I played. LaCrosse has always been my favorite, but I truly love football.
0: What could have you what could have happened differently though? If he was riding you like uh officer and a gentleman, why won't you quit Mayo? Yeah. Like why why was he why was when he was torturing you, what, what could you have done?
1: Um, well, I mean, we ended up having a, uh, almost an altercation in the weight room uh, where I, I told him how I really felt about him. And um, if he had treated me like uh, any other player, if he had treated me uh, with respect, I, I think it would have been a different story where we could have had a conversation about it. But, you know, to he would call me a dumb Polak um, in front of other players. And here I was going to Brown University, playing three sports and being called a dumb Pollock. By a guy who I had no respect for.
0: Yeah, that sounds incredibly difficult, complex. And, uh, you know, I I kind of admire your decision, although it sounds like it was a hard one, you know, obviously a hard one. Dave, post college, you played some professional lacrosse, and then at some point, you created an organization called uh, Team Team Elevate. Elevate. What is Team Elevate?
1: Well, Team Elevate came out of. Uh, I have three daughters, and um, I've coached my daughters in all of their sports. My daughters were ice hockey players, field hockey players, soccer players, and lacrosse players. And uh, the only sport I didn't coach them in was field hockey. I never played the game; didn't know anything about it. And um, but I coached them in everything else. And my oldest daughter, Victoria, who was a really good lacrosse player, she. We had started um, around the time before I had started Team Elevate, I was president of the Long Island Lizards of Major League Lacrosse. And I had started a Junior Lizards program. And the first team we started wasn't a boys team, it was a girls team. And my daughter was playing on the Junior Lizards and all of her friends were trying out for another team. And uh, she asked me, would it be okay if she tried out? I said, of course, she made the other team and the other team was a really strong team, much stronger than we had. And she ended up choosing that team over the Junior Lizards. and um, But the experience on that team was it was a program where they had boys and girls. And the boys got treated like kings, and the girls got treated like crap. And um, it was coaches not showing up for practices, coaches leaving tournaments early, coaches not showing up for tournaments at all, and, and we're paying for this. So uh, the next year, I approached the program and said – if you need someone to be the permanent coach on this team, I'll be the coach. And they said, well, you don't want any parent coaches. And uh, I said, well, you don't have any coaches right now. And in essence, you already have parent coaches because we're the ones who are coaching when no one else shows up. (laughs) So uh, all the parents got together and they said, Dave, why don't you start a team and we'll all come. And a bunch of the kids from that team came and that was our first team elevate team. We didn't start the program with the goal of creating a prior program, we just created one team to create an opportunity. And from that opportunity, the program grew. We didn't have another team in two th- my daughter's graduation year was 2012. We had no 2013 team. And then just by random, uh, a friend of mine asked me if I would help coach his daughter's team, which were all 2014s. And uh, we brought them into the fold And so we had two teams and then the next year we decided to hold tryouts and and we grew it. And um, my other daughters were getting to the age where they could start playing. So we had teams for them as well. And and that's how Elevate grew. And, and, And when it grew, we knew what we wanted from the beginning. We wanted a program that was all about girls, that would empower girls to be the best that they could be in everything they do, not just lacrosse. We made a huge focus on academics, and we would, we would literally have study sessions with them. We would have SAT, ACT programs set up for them where they would do it in group settings. And uh, we, w- we knew that we were creating something different.
0: It sounds different and I know it's been very successful. The motto is elevate your mind, elevate your body, elevate your game, elevate your life. I was uh, looking at a presentation that you uh, gave, I think at a US lacrosse conference. And there's a somewhat provocative slide in your presentation, which I will read the content of that slide now, and I'd love for you to unpack it for us and explain what this means or what you mean by it. Boys feel good when they play well. Girls need to feel good in order to play well. What does that mean?
1: Someone gave me that piece of advice. I I wish I know who told me it. All I remember is I remember the quote because I thought it was so powerful is, you know, Girls on the mental side of things, um, they are completely different than, than boys and they need to feel good about themselves in order to get the best out of themselves. I was having a conversation with Jenny Levy, the head coach of University of North Carolina and the current Team USA um, world team coach. And we were talking about this specific topic and this was a few years ago And she said, Dave, You're absolutely true. I may have a first team All-American on my team who will come to me in the middle of the game and say, I don't deserve to be on the field right now. Where on the boys, you could have a fourth string short stick d middy who's on the bench and he thinks he's better than everyone else on the field. Um, So a lot of this has to do with the confidence level of the girls. And we knew that from the beginning. And so we wanted to make sure that all of our girls would feel good about themselves to get the most out of them.
0: Is that a nurture thing or a nature thing? Meaning is this a conditioned uh, experience that women are taught to believe or do you or do you think it's inherent or, or part of their natural makeup that we're just different? The genders are different and we look at the world differently?
1: I think the genders are different and we look at the world differently, but you know, there are some kids that I have who are super confident and I don't you know, I they give me the most. There are a lot of these kids who are self starters, um they're the ones who separate themselves. So it's a kind of a combination of both, I would think.
0: It You know, y- your background is so interesting because it sounds like you've overcome an enormous amount of adversity. You described growing up in a home that was uh, dangerous emotionally and potentially physically. Um, it's clear to me that coaches have played a Remarkably important role in your life. And from that, you've learned to obviously coach and mentor and create a program that focuses on maybe the right things first. Talk to me a little bit about some of those right things because
1: you mentioned mentoring, Gary. Yeah. And and, um, a lot of these coaches without me even knowing in the beginning that they were mentors, they were mentors, but I truly had one mentor that was, I literally, he was my first ever mentor. And um, when I made the decision to go to Brown, um, I came home that night and I took the train home um, by myself. Uh, I was always doing things by myself. Took the train home. You know, Didn't. No one went with me. And by
0: the way, I you're took- smiling. For people who can't see, Dave right now are just listening. He's smiling about this. So, did you oh, like? Yeah. Did you like being on your own and like going to train stations and going to bus stations? Did you like that?
1: When I was 12 years old, I would go into the city to visit my brother on his own. I'd ride my bike to the train station, take the Long Island Railroad. I'd never pay. I'd, I when I saw the conductor, I would just move to another car. <laughs> I would slip under the subway terminal. Uh, get in the subway, take the subway to my brother's, and walk to his apartment when I was 12. And um, so, you know, I, I've always been that kid who was who was on his own. But um, I was extremely lucky. Um, I started to say when I came home that, that first night after visiting Brown and knowing that I wanted to go there, my mom w- was a nurse, and she worked the 11 to 7 shift, and she was just getting ready for work, sitting there. I'm getting emotional because um, – <laughs> My mom was crying at the table, and I said, what's the matter? And she said, uh, you know, I let you down. I said, how? She said, West Point was free. I have no money, zero. I, I We can't afford Brown. So all I, I sat there and said, I need to come up with a plan. And my plan was, I was working on a garbage truck at the time um, during the summers and during the winters when I had um, time off to, to work. And I, I had been working since I was 12 years old. Um, I always had a job. And um, I went to my boss at the garbage company and I said, would you be willing to give me a job as soon as I graduate for the next 12 months? And he said, why aren't you going to go to college? And I said, I am no money and I need to save up money for a year before I can go and I, I, I need to know if I can do this because I'm gonna ask my coach if he can recruit me one year later. And I went back to Dom Starsha and told him my personal situation. He said, before you get really upset, there's a thing called financial aid. And it's, <laughs> it's designed for people just like you. And there are scholarships available and you have great grades, so let's see how you do. And I applied uh, applied to Brown and I won what is considered one of the most prestigious scholarships at Brown, which is the Thomas Watson Scholarship. Thomas Watson was the founder of IBM and his son, Thomas Watson Jr., he gave that scholarship. He donated $100 million to Brown and created the science library at Brown. It's called the Watson Science Library, the Watson Global Institute at Brown. And um, I wrote him a thank you note. And it was a two-page handwritten thank you note. And I poured my heart out to him to let him know how this scholarship was going to literally change my life. And um, he decided that it was such a powerful note, he wanted to meet me in person. So he was coming up to Brown for a corporation meeting. He was on the board of trustees. And um, we we had breakfast in the cafeteria. And I had no idea who he was. This was all prior to computers and internet searches and I happened to mention to my roommate that I was meeting him and he said, do you know who he is? I said, no, but he must have a lot of money because he's paying for me to go to Brown. (laughs) And he said, uh, well, he's the chairman of IBM and my dad works for him. And so now I was nervous because I knew who IBM was and um, he ended up just being one of the most genuine people. He was a B-52 bomber pilot in World War II. Um, and he was an ambassador to Russia, um, just an amazing individual. And he took a, a, a role in my life as my first ever mentor. He wanted me to stay in touch with him, write him, send me press clippings, let him know how I was doing in sports. And he was my first ever mentor. And
0: um, he was a mentor until the day he died. How did that make you feel when you got your first mentor? I just felt like, it
1: was different because I had someone who literally was looking out for me and wanted the best for me. And um, what was amazing was after I graduated from Brown, I started out on Wall Street. I knew, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted to make more money. Uh, I had student loans that had to be paid back as part of my financial aid package. And as part of my financial aid package, I also had to have a job at Brown for all four years. So not only did I play sports, but I also had to work um, when I was there. And, um, but my first job was either I was gonna be a teacher back at Chaminade, I was gonna be assistant coach at at Brown for $9,000 a year, or I was gonna go work on Wall Street. And uh, I went the Wall Street route and I hated it. Um, I did not like sitting on a trading desk every day. Uh, I just didn't like it at all. And I was always thinking about going back to law school so I mentioned it to Mr. Watson and he said, come up to IBM and meet with me. And I went up to meet with him and he slid an envelope across the desk and I, and he said, open it. And it was on his personal stationery and, he said, and it, all it said was law school's paid for Thomas Watson Jr. His signature. Wow. Blown away. And um, he said, but there's a difference between this one and, and the first scholarship he got this one, there's there's two requirements. One, you have to do this for some other kid down the road. And secondly, you have to convince me why you want to be a lawyer. So I agreed to the first one. And then the second one, I went into a 10 minute spiel on why I, why I wanted to be a lawyer. And um, when I finished, he said, you're done? I said, yeah. And he said, give me the note back. I'm not paying for it. He said, you don't want to be a lawyer. You just don't want to work on Wall Street. And he said, don't ever run from something, run towards something. And right now you're running away from something and that's not good run towards something you need to find your path and he didn't offer me a job at ibm he said you need to find your path you need to do it and and i did and i ended up having a very successful wall street career with merrill lynch but in a different avenue Um, i was a financial consultant who specialized in business financial planning and I also became a professional development coach for Merrill Lynch. So where Merrill Lynch was, that was where I started my coaching career, with coaching all of our new hires.
0: How did the mentorship of Mr. Watson translate to the skills in being a coach? And is there a Mr. Watson effect in Team Elevate?
1: Oh, there's definitely a Mr. Watson effect. There's the whole paying it forward and and what we do. We provide a tremendous amount of scholarships to kids who can't afford to play travel lacrosse. Um, I'm a mentor to hundreds of kids, um, and it doesn't stop when they go into college. Um, With these kids, whether they're having trouble with school or they're having trouble uh, on their team or coach or playing time, whatever subject is, they call me. And they come back to me and it's a, it's a tremendous role. And it's something that I honor and it's something that I love that these kids feel so good about our relationship that they do come to me for all these things.
0: You know, it's just so interesting listening to the last 25 or 30 minutes. You know, it starts off with a kid who's in a bad situation, who gets pulled by the collar into an athletic director's office. And after two hours of a stern lecture, ends up realizing that there's more good in you than bad and that you as an individual were focused on the bad. And this mentor coach savior gets you to switch that switch. And in two hours, your focus and cognition goes to what's good about you.
1: Yeah. But I would tell you the, the, the one thing, cause I'm in the process of writing a book about my life story. And the one thing that I will tell you that really changed my life was um this is going to be tough to, to get through without me tearing up. But, it's okay. Um, my, as I said, my freshman year at Chaminade was a tough first year. It was tough adapting to Chaminade. I didn't feel like I truly belonged And, um, going into, I played lacrosse obviously in my freshman year, I was a starting goaltender on JV. We had a very good season. I think we ended up going 17 and one and winning a championship. And, um, but during that whole time I was dealing with my mental health struggles and I was extremely suicidal and I wrote my suicide note. And, um, I, I decided when I was going to do it or where I was going to do it and how I was going to do it. And, um, that week I met my wife, 15 years old, 15 years old. And I met my wife and I fell in love. I tore up the suicide note and knew that this was going to be the the person I was going to marry. And we've been together
0: ever since. What was it about her that made you feel so special? She gave me something to live for.
1: There was a there was a light at the end of the tunnel. We we dreamed together. We we would ride around expensive neighborhoods and say, This is gonna be us one day.
0: Dave, you know uh it sounds like an incredibly complica- complicated journey, and one that certainly deserves to be celebrated. As you sit here today, a guy who's run an extremely successful lacrosse program, has an Ivy League education, has uh, had a friendship with a, you know, a diplomat, a remarkably wealthy and in- influential person. A little bit of luck, maybe, along the way too, Dave. Do you think? Fate. 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 It's, it's Fate's not a better word. Luck. It's a better word.
1: I'll, I'll tell you how crazy, how crazy this story is. When I was at Merrill Lynch, there was a, a specific program that they had where they would assign a financial consultant and you had to be approved. You had to go through a training program for it, but you would be assigned a, um, a big public company and you were going to work with the executives in that company to do personal financial planning for them and, and things like that. And the company I was assigned to, IBM.
0: Was that random, or do you think something was moving? Yeah.
1: It was really random, but at the time, Mr. Watson had died, but I still stayed in touch with his wife, and I would write her to let her know how I was doing. And uh, I wrote her telling her about IBM, and she said, that's not a mistake. It was meant to happen.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. You know, there's a little bit of interesting irony, too, the backstory about Brown University is it is the landmark Title IX law case.
1: Sure.
0: And it sounds like your beginning in coaching youth sports was a focus on uh, equity and equality for, for, for gender. So there's a lot of really interesting we fight, ironies. We had to
1: fight for field time. We had to fight for field time. Our local high school had put in a new turf facility, which was gorgeous. Um, donated donated by some Wall Street people and um, the girls weren't allowed to play on the turf the girls had to play on the girls were given one day in the entire season where they could have games on the turf or practice on the turf one day so we've been fighting for equality ever since
0: what are some of the things that you've done to kind of break through that glass ceiling for for your program
1: well, I think, you know, for us, it was, you know, getting those girls, helping those girls find the right schools and <clears throat> excuse me, getting them recruited. And um, what was amazing is not only were our girls going on to great schools, but so many of them were becoming captains of their college teams. Interesting. So we knew we were doing something right. We knew that the secret sauce that we had of what we were putting into these kids Was coming out in a very favorable way. In the end, Uh, we had players that were stepping on the field right away. I mean, this past uh, Final Four, we had Team Elevate players on every single Final Four team. Wow! And um, it's not just the best the best lacrosse schools; it's the best academic schools as well. You know, we have kids going to pretty much all the Ivy League schools. uh, I think, except for Columbia and Harvard, right now, Um, we have kids going to the best NESCAC schools. Um, you know, whenever pe- whenever parents ask me where we should be looking at recruiting, I'm always talking about the NASCAC schools because they're the mini Ivy League. Um, it's it's what are you going to do for the next forty years, not what are you going to do for the next four years.
0: You know, and and one of the uh, web pages on uh, teamelevatelax.com. So if you want to learn about the program, it's team elevate e l e v a t e laxlax.com uh it says something along the lines of you really you really live the mantra of academics first on this program and i can tell one because of the schools you're getting these kids into and the sat prep and the act prep but you also make the point in there it's like hey um you know this academic journey is the journey of your life and the fun of playing lacrosse is important but you really prioritized the academics first. You, you mentioned earlier in, in this interview that um, to avoid the conflict that you were experiencing or the abuse that you're experiencing at home, at home you were either playing sports or studying. So were you nat- a naturally good student or do you think it's just like through hard work and discipline that you became a good student? And thinking about some of your players, who are these high achievers? What do you? What is it that helps promote this academic success? Because I, I'm a huge believer in the academics that create real equality. I mean, if you learn something, Dave, no one can ever take that away from you.
1: Sure, and you don't stop learning. I mean, you know, even prior to this podcast, I'm I'm reading a book called Thinking Grow Rich, which was given to me by one of my first bosses. It was written in the 1920s, so you're talking about this book is 100 years old. And, um, the name's not the greatest name, think and grow rich, but it's, it's really about the power of positive thinking and what you could do with your life. I mean, I'm a kid who was constantly, constantly fighting with my self-confidence. I fight with my self-confidence as an adult, you know, um, do I belong? And that's part of my mental health struggle. It wasn't until I was 53 years old that I was diagnosed as being bipolar and finally put on medication, which has made a huge impact in my life Um, and in the beginning I was ashamed of it um, that I had to be on a medication but um, my therapist said are are you ashamed of people who are who have diabetes and who have to take you know drugs for diabetes that's it's what they need it's what their body needs and in my case you know the the current medication that I'm on it's what I need and uh, it's made a big impact for me and um, it's 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 definitely helped me. But, you know, having a mom who worked her butt off to raise six kids on her own and having that work ethic, um, my mom put that work ethic in me.
0: What are some of the signals that coaches and mentors should look for in young kids that may be a sign that that child or that young adult needs some mental health advice? So do you have any recommendations for coaches having gone through that yourself and then a follow-up question to that would be if you suspect hey uh, Nancy's you know acting out or Tom's acting out do you have any recommendations on how to approach the the athlete or the child and have a conversation
1: I mean I've had I've had different issues over the course of the years with different kids where it's almost as if I kind of have uh, a little bit of a radar for it where you're recognizing there something's not right they're not their normal self. Um, they're, they're pulling back from the team They're pulling back from the things that they love. And you got to say, why is this happening? And, um, and I think because I've always been so brutally honest with the kids that I coach and they know who I am. Um, the kids are very comfortable in talking to me about what might, what might be going on. You know, I had a kid one time tell me, I just knew something was wrong. And, in her case, it was her dad was just being really, really hard on her about lacrosse and was making lacrosse unfun. And um, and at that point, I ended up having not only a discussion with the the player involved, but I had a discussion with the mom and wanted her to know how much this was affecting her daughter, and I didn't know if she truly knew that. And uh, And eventually had a discussion with the dad, and he couldn't have been more upset about it. And he's like, I can't believe I'm doing this and made a huge change. Um, and, you know, one thing we don't do is we don't put up with any crap in our program. Um, we have a thing called the NAZ rule, which is the no a-hole zone. And we don't put up with kids who act like jerks. We don't put up with coaches who act like jerks and we don't put up with parents who act like jerks. So I have suspended parents. I've given parents six months suspensions for how they behave on the sidelines. And because it's an embarrassment, not only to themselves, but it's an embarrassment to their kids. Mm. So the one thing I would say to any coaches out there is be open, have conversations, talk about mental health, talk about, you know, that it's okay not to be okay. And I think from my perspective, in me coming to grips with my own mental health has made it so much easier for me to talk to my kids about it. And when I say my kids, I'm talking about my
0: players. Interesting. You call them your kids. I do. Yeah, that's lovely. So, Dave, you know, I understand you're also working on some other things beyond just uh, Elevate Lacrosse. Just tell us a little bit about that as well.
1: Well, we're getting close to launching the Sports Business Network. And what the Sports Business Network is all about is we want to become the LinkedIn for sports. We want to be the resource. There's about 480,000 NCAA athletes across all the sports. There's also an additional 2 million student athletes that play club sports in college, where they are playing to, in some cases, national championships. So we wanna be a resource, not only for all of them, but for all of the alumni, to help them really accomplish three things. Develop business and network with each other, advance their careers, whether it be an internship or a first job, or maybe it's a second job or a career change, and then creating connections mentoring programs and things like that. Um, this is something that I've done you know, with Team Elevate. I did it when I was the president of the Friends of Brown Lacrosse program. And now we wanna do it in a formal way where we're gonna have both an app. The app has just been approved by um, Apple and Google. So it's both for Android and iOS. And um, we'll also have a desktop, but there will be, we have tremendous speakers lined up. And as part of this, we've partnered with Spartan I don't know if you're familiar sure. with Spartan races, but Joe DeSena is a good friend of mine, the CEO and founder of Spartan. And uh, Joe is officially, it'll be the Sports Business Network sponsored by Spartan. And everyone who joins the network will get a free Spartan race.
0: Wow, that's exciting. So we definitely wanna you know, get back with you when that launches and, and learn more about that in the future. Dave, we like to wrap up the show with uh, a fun question. You, you've played in a lot of games. You've played in a lot of different sports. You've coached a lot of different games. What have you gained more from, Dave, the wins or the losses?
1: You know, human nature, we're always tougher on ourselves on the losses. Um, You know, someone said to me the other day, they were saying it, it takes 10 compliments to overcome one bad negative comment. And, um I think I've taken the losses much harder. Um, my good friend, Jim Mule, who was the coach of the Lizards when I was the president, I remember one thing Jimmy said to me about winning and losing. He said, you're never as good as you think you are when you win and you're never as bad as you think you are when you lose. And um, I've probably taken the losses harder, but you know the wins, we celebrate the wins. And I think one of the things that, I've come to grips with, with my own therapy and everything is, we need to celebrate the successes. You know, I, I look at myself today as not a victim of what happened to me as a kid and as an adult, uh, cause it hasn't been an easy ride. I look at myself as a survivor. That's who I am.
0: Dave, if the football coach from Brown was here right now and you wanted to resolve that past conflict, what would you say to him? I already did with him. And how did it go? I'm dying to know. It didn't go well. By the I way, Dave, that's my job. I have to ask these tough questions.
1: Yeah, I, I ran into him in a bar in Newport. Did you? And um, and once again, it's just the way he talks. And uh, he's like, hey, Katowski, how you doing? You know, what's up? Still got a little bit of an anger streak. And um, I was an adult at this point And I said, are you still an asshole? And uh, sorry for cursing on the podcast. It's okay. But, uh, that's what I said to him, and I said, you know, the difference is, um, I said I have ways of uh, of dealing with my anger issues, and I take them out in sports. I said, but for someone like you, you're always going to be you, and I feel bad for you.
0: Yeah, good. Well, that's a good wrap up, Dave. It's a fascinating story. We'd love to, uh, you know, to read your book when it comes out, and definitely have you on, and uh, you know, keep in touch, and we'd love to stay in touch if you're open to it.
1: Gary, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, buddy. On the Whistle is powered by Squad Locker. Squad Locker is your one-stop shop for customized team apparel delivered right to your front door. To learn more, visit squadlocker.com.